Hey, it's Angela Yee from Way Up with Angela Yee. Imagine swapping your car keys for a chance to move your body, better mental health, connecting with your community, and creating memories without spending money. Join me and embrace nature's pace by taking a walk, hike, or a bike ride with Rails to Trails Conservancy, because our time on the trail is so much more than a day outside. Get ideas for getting outside at reelstotrails.org slash iHeart and on social media at Reels to Trails. Hey, ladies, it's Angela Yee. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com slash RTP for official rules and a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com slash RTP. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What's up? It's Way Up with Angela Yee. I'm Angela Yee. And Lieutenant Governor Antonio Delgado is here from New York State. Okay. Good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. And you are from not New York City, but Schenectady. Upstate. Uh, (laughs) Born and raised uh, in Schenectady. Mm -hmm. Um, Lived there all through high school. Family still uh, in Schenectady. Now live in Dutchess County. All right. So for people who aren't from (laughs) this area, how far is that from, say, Manhattan? It's about two and a half hours Mm -hmm. to Dutchess County. Uh, And then another hour or so, hour and 15 minutes to get to Schenectady. Okay. you know, about three hours total. And you are working with Governor Kathy Hochul. Yes. And she has quite an interesting story of even becoming governor. You know, it was just a, a crazy time, <laughs> things that we couldn't have anticipated. And it's interesting for you being from upstate because I also have a house upstate. And I just remember during the election time seeing a whole lot of Lee Zeldin signs mm-hmm. on people's front lawns, mm-hmm. you know. So yeah. for you coming from where you're from um, and winning to be in Congress, even where you're from, that felt like an anomaly. Yeah, it was definitely a a interesting time um, when I decided to run in 2017. Uh, I was actually working in the city. Mm-hmm. I was working at a law firm uh, in Midtown um, and then decided to move uh, back upstate uh, where I and my wife were from. My wife's from Ulster County. Hey, Lacey. Um, <laughs> yes, shout out to Lacey. And, uh, <laughs> and we decided to run um, because we felt it was important. And I say we because it was a family decision. We had two little boys. They didn't decide, but, you know, twins and mm-hmm. it was going to affect their lives, too. Uh, we knew it was going to be important uh, to go home to get involved in public service at that time. And when we got there, uh, me being from Schenectady, Lacey uh, being from Woodstock, uh, we we felt like we were returning home. But the the district that I was running in, you know, it was 90 percent white. Uh, Trump had won it in uh, mm-hmm. 2016 by seven points. Uh, it was a very rural uh, yeah. seat. Because people know. think New York and they always think New York City. They don't think about New York State. Right. Yeah. Right. And um, but at the same time, I think what grounded us and what anchored us was the fact that it was home. And 
um, you know, being upstate wasn't unfamiliar, mm-hmm. you know, to me or to her. And so we just got busy connecting with people. My parents worked for General Electric in Schenectady for a very long time. So when I spoke about growing up in Schenectady, parents working for GE, we were able to really connect. But that being said, there were a lot of folks who thought a person of color couldn't win uh, in the district, let alone upstate, because right. no person of color had ever went to Congress uh, from upstate New York. Ever. Not not a, a Latino, not no, a nobody. black person. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, and so, but at the time we felt if we can connect people in a real way, mm-hmm. you know, listen to them, engage with them um, and lead with love, you know, we, we could we could do it. And right. I think um, especially because now we're talking about hip, hip hop 50, you know, me being a former hip hop artist, I can understand why some folks maybe thought, you know, oh, well, how's that going to translate? Is it is it going to work in upstate? But the fact of the matter is I knew and my wife knew and our community knew, our friends knew that, you know, being from uh from home and being able to talk about being from home and being who we are and true to who we are was going to resonate. And ultimately uh, it did. So we didn't even get good. to the hip hop artist part yet. You brought it up first. <laughs> and that was something that was used against you, though, at yes. that time from your opponents when you were running for Congress. It was. It was used against me. Um, they they pulled a lot of the old, you know, lyrics out of context and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, videos. Because it was of, positive rap, just very to put positive. that away. <laughs> yeah. I, my mother wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> That's not how I was recognized. I, I, I was raised in the church. Um, so my my whole commitment to the culture was how do I utilize this platform in a way that can help us speak truth to power mm-hmm. and talk about racial inequities, talk about misogyny, even talk about things like climate change. You know, right. I was rapping about that, you know, back in 2005, 2006. So, you know, when they started to try to figure out how to make me out to be something that I wasn't, it, it, it kind of rang hollow. It, it rang hollow. Right. And not just to, to those who knew me, but even to the community. I think they saw right through it. They knew it was a charade and they were offended by it. And mm-hmm. it ultimately, I think, galvanized Backfire, them. Yeah. Right. I think <laughs> they said, wait a second, you, you're trying to trying to play us, really. You're trying to make us feel one way about this guy when we know he's not that way. So just talk about it truthfully. you know. And I think we were able to meet folks where they were. And ultimately, I think that was a, that's what allowed us to have success. Well, let's get into you and your background, because I do always want to encourage people who may have never thought to run for office that it is possible. Because like you said, 90 percent white. It was an area that Trump had won by seven points previously. And so people might say that's never going to happen and just count it out, because I think sometimes we're really scared of change and we can talk ourselves out of things and say mm-hmm. this is impossible. Right. Mm-hmm. And you've shown that. Um, it is possible. So when you were younger, uh, we talked about the whole hip hop thing. You really did want to be a hip hop artist, oh, right? Absolutely. And you spent a lot of time. So where did things go left? Because <laughs> clearly it didn't work out. We're here, which is fine. But why do you think it didn't work for you at that time? Because some people will feel like positive messages and hip hop don't always, I guess, uh they're not always the most profitable right. well, and I think things that's for labels. A, that's certainly a part of it. There's a lot of reasons. I think some of it have to do with the actual industry and what's been deemed profitable. But, you know, I can own my own mistakes, too. I think, <laughs> let, let, let me let me first say that uh, when I when I um, decided to go to L.A., mm-hmm. you know, I graduated from Harvard Law. So that was a big, you know, right turn or left turn, however you want to phrase it, for my family. <laughs> what are you doing? You know, you, you, you have a law degree. You... You know, you've been, you know, uh, getting uh, good degrees and overseas yeah. and at Colgate. Why? We paid why? all this money right. for you what to go to school, for you to be a rapper. <laughs> um, but I always told my family, you know, you guys raised me to to follow my heart, to follow my passion, to be true to who I am. I believe in the culture. I love mm-hmm. the culture. I see it. I actually wrote um, and studied a lot when I was in law school 
about the essence of the culture and where it came from and how it could lead to change. And so I wanted to try to put that into practice. That mm-hmm. was my focus. That was my drive. The problem, I think, for me at the time was I wasn't thinking about the business side of it. Okay. You know, I didn't have a real business plan. I had a vision, right? <laughs> I had an idea, right? And I think at the time I thought that was enough, mm-hmm. that it was enough to just be inspired by you know, what I felt inside of me. And I think it is important for our young people to follow their hearts and to be inspired and to be true to who they are. And you never know. But it's also important to do your homework. And have a plan. And to have a plan. I say that with small businesses <laughs> all the time. You can't just say, I want to start a business. Well, let's do some research on the area. Let's see uh, what kind of funding is going to be needed to get this off the ground. What, yes. what is it going to cost me to hire employees? Where am I going to find these employees? Yes. Is this a great area for us to open a business? And I was humbled. Mm-hmm. You know, I I, I think I went into it um, believing that it would manifest on its own if right. I just became an artist. And right. uh, but at the same time, I didn't I didn't give up either. You know, I five years I was out in L.A. Uh, and I had, you know, had some pretty odd end jobs as a parking lot attendant. I was, you know, uh, file clerk. I was doing all types of random things just to give myself time to to record and write and perform and. My parents were calling me, asking me to come back home. My mom was in tears half the time, saying, what are you doing? You're like, you went to Harvard Law School, sir. You know? yeah, no, I mean, you and I, that is. And you met your wife in law school, right? I did. Okay, so I did. was she supportive of this dream at the time? Well, it was funny because, so Lacey and I are very similar in that we both are creative spirits. And mm-hmm. after law school, she didn't practice law either. She went and became an incredible filmmaker. Yes. And she still is a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. You see the difference? Right. Okay. <laughs> right. So, so, well, women, so. you know how we do. <laughs> so, um, but she when had I was, a plan. <laughs> she had a plan, and she'll tell you if you ask her what, what went wrong with me, she, she'll tell you he didn't have a plan. Yeah. Right. So, but we actually fell in love uh, in law school. I, you know, love at first sight for me, and but it was uh, one of those things where I was a one L first year law student. She's a third year law student. Okay. Um, timing wasn't right, and we ended up going our separate ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, eight years later. While I'm now in L.A. and she's back in New York City, we reconnect. Okay. And that's when, and while we were reconnecting, I'm now transitioning out of the music space, trying to get back into law now because the the music thing didn't quite work out. Okay. Um, you know, it didn't work out because, like, we've established I didn't have a plan. Yeah, dope lyrics about climate change wasn't, wasn't yeah. going to cut it, right? <laughs> and 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 uh, and I just started to realize um, that what I had hoped for, it didn't mean that everybody, you know, was on the same page. And so I had to feel whether or not I was comfortable staying in this lane or Mm -hmm. try other things, be more creative, you know, speak about certain things that maybe I didn't really want to talk about, you know, just to sort of broaden the audience. And I I just ultimately decided that wasn't the path I wanted to go down. But I have to say that that experience probably helps you with what you do now as far as connecting with people, being able to express yourself, being comfortable in front of people and having to speak. Because, you know, then you transition, uh, like you said, to come back to New York and then you practice law. And what area of law did you work in? It was criminal justice reform. You worked pro bono. Yes. So I ended up working at a um, at a big white shoe law firm, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, focusing on the litigation side, financial restructuring, bankruptcy law, and commercial contract law, complex commercial contract law. And then I did pro bono as part of that under criminal justice reform, particularly on juvenile lifers. And okay. Making sure right. that as we deal with um, the cruel and unusual punishment of 
committing a child to life without parole, which had ultimately been overturned by the Supreme Court. How do we resentence these individuals and get them back on track? So that was a big part of the work that I did when I was uh, at uh, in the legal field. I will say to your point, though, about the lessons that I learned when I was practicing or when I was a hip hop artist. And I always tell young people this failing for me as much as it hurt and it hurt. It was hard for me to let go of that dream. It definitely built some fortitude in me and it made me a, it gave me a real strong sense of who I am, and right. what I want out of my life and what I believe in and what I'm prepared to overcome and deal with to get there. And every trial and tribulation that I've experienced since then, I've leaned on what it felt like to fail in that moment and dust myself off and get myself back up. And so there's a lesson in failing. There's a lesson in in tripping and falling and taking that risk. Even if you don't, you know, do everything the right way, don't don't be too hard on yourself. The, the, the real lesson is what you do in response to that moment and how you build yourself. And those long hours and days, you know, practicing law, that was hard for me to make right. that transition. But I had priorities. I had a family. You know, I wanted to make sure that they were good, we were secure, I could provide. And so I was able to lean on you know, just that discipline and that focus and things that I was able to cultivate when I was a hip hop artist. And for people listening, these videos are still available, right? <laughs> There's well, a couple out there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was what was the name? Was it AD? AD it? The Voice. AD The Voice. AD All right. The so voice. make sure for the 50th anniversary of hip hop, maybe we can uh, get some of those back up. And <laughs> yeah, they're out there. <laughs> in rotation. <laughs> All right. So now let's move to that because working in the space of criminal justice reform, did that, uh, was that one of the reasons why you said, I actually want to run for Congress to help push through legislation because you saw a lot of things, like you said, that were happening, uh, juveniles getting life parole, you know, all of that. Is that what made you feel inspired? Yes, that's a big part of it. I think, I think deeper than that would just be broadly growing inequality and the idea that um, folks all across this country in, in New York in particular, we're being left behind. And I looked at my own life. I grew up working class. I grew up cutting coupons, putting clothes on layaway. You know, I grew up, um, you know, in, in, in tough neighborhoods. My parents worked us up out of those neighborhoods over mm-hmm. time. But I remember, you remember it, yes. I remember, <laughs> you know, when I was four, five, six, seven, eight, you know, the proximity and, and, and what was around and, and my family, my cousins who've been in and out of jail. So, this and it feels a, normal, too, when you're growing yes, up I was, because you grew up that way. So it's so normalized. Like, this is what life is like. Right. And and I was just talking to my brother about this, how when you really step back and think about that period in our lives, you know, what was happening, who was in our lives, our, you know, our, our parents, friends, and just really thinking through that that dynamic, it, it was revealing to think about sort of where we started and then how they ultimately, you know, worked really hard and got us, you know, to safer neighborhoods, bigger apartments. And then by my freshman year in high school, I was able to, we were able to move into the suburbs and buy a brand new home. And that was, you know, um, remarkable for me. And I I lived, I saw that. I saw how it happened. Right. And my dad, um, you know, who raised me, my stepfather who raised me, um, who came into my life when I was two, you know, he pulled me onto that plot of land and said, this is what hard work you know, in this country can get you. So those kind of things, they kind of stuck with me. And so when I saw the energy shifting, I felt like there was more of a focus from our political leaders on being divisive, on, Mm -hmm. you know, pitting folks against each other, you know, spreading hate over love and not really thinking about upward mobility for everybody, but concentration of wealth and power. 
I felt like I have been too blessed and too fortunate to not figure out how to utilize, you know, my skills and what I've been able to do over the course of my life to get in the ring. Did you feel a real shift when Trump became president? I felt very concerned about who my children were going to be looking up to uh, and other children. I felt very concerned about the energy that was brought into the fold. It felt it felt divisive. It felt um, dark to me. Mm-hmm. And it felt like it was important that we bring, to the extent that we can, some light into the situation. Because the fact of the matter is, you know, black and brown communities disproportionately feel the effects of that kind of energy. Everybody right. feels it. Mm-hmm. Everybody feels it. But because of our history, we're going to feel disproportionately so. And so I felt very compelled to to, to step in and, and figure out um, how to engage. And I can tell you, you know, once I became a member of Congress and I was able to engage with a lot of poor white people in, in, in rural upstate New York, you know, you, you can see the pain and, and you can understand the anxiety and how if you're not there on the ground connecting with people, no matter what their background, if they feel left behind and unheard, they're going to be angry and they're going to be upset. And it's important to figure out how to bring change to those communities. Hey, ladies, it's Angela Yee. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month. It's crucial for us, especially as black women, to focus on our heart health. We pour our heart and soul into every aspect of our lives, but often our own health takes a back seat. That's where Release the Pressure comes in. It's all about us, black women, seeing self-care as an essential act of self-preservation. Whether it's for yourself, your family, or our community, your health is invaluable. Let's help get to our goal of 100,000 black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Here's how you can join in. Head on over to iHeartRadio.com slash RTP for official rules and a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. Let's make our health a priority. Visit iHeartRadio.com slash RTP today. Together, we can make a difference in our health and our lives. Join us and let's take care of our hearts together. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks. Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. What's up? It's Angela Yee and you know all those phrases we live by like the early bird gets the worm. Hunter be hunted. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. But that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. Thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring, so you find qualified candidates fast. And now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash way up. And of course, ZipRecruiter's smart technology will help you find the top talent for your roles right away. We know how essential it is for our business to have the best employees. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash way up to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash way up. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. To the communities that have been left behind and forgotten, black, brown, white, doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where... 
political leadership needs to go. I feel like we're not there. We've gotten stuck right. on sort of maintaining what is. Yeah. And things are definitely divided amongst the party lines. And I want to talk about this, um, these 10 regional councils that you're uh, spearheading. It is the state's hate and bias prevention unit. Yes. Okay. So we've never had something like this, have we? Not statewide. Okay. There are are, uh, hate prevention, not prevention, um, hate responsive task force where there might be the city might have a task force that might be reacting to a situation that's been deemed a hate crime. But this is more preventative, where we have 10 regional councils all across the state, uh, from the city up to the North Country, um, out to Western New York and Buffalo. Um, And the idea is to have actors who are really engaged in the work of love, compassion and advocacy and tolerance, whether it's educators, faith leaders, business leaders who come together voluntarily to connect based on the needs of their community to engage with the community in dialogue and to create events that foster more harmony and more unity and create opportunities for difficult conversations. Because oftentimes, uh, you know, the hate that people feel sometimes is, is comes from ignorance. It's not right. because they don't, they just naturally feel that way. You just have to figure out how to help people see the truth and, and guide them. And I think being non-judgmental in the process yeah. is important. So as the chair of the hate and bias prevention units, which is now under the umbrella of the division of human rights, uh, I am, leading the statewide effort to take on these preventative uh, steps. Hopefully, you know, to sort of create a different climate, a different energy. Yeah, because I remember seeing the statistic that uh, shootings and homicides were down, but hate crimes were up. Yes. And I I think that the fact that hate crimes are growing, that should really disturb everybody because that means there's something going on in the psyche of, of us collectively that we're not that we're, we're we're separate from each other that we don't we're not connected and that's a horrible that's that is a very dangerous space to be in and when you look at the kinds of leaders that are emerging right now mm-hmm. you get more demagogues when you have that kind of environment they 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 can manipulate that right. oh, okay we see people are on edge you know they're anxious about stuff and so they play with your feelings they play with your emotions and then they call themselves you know leaders, you know, and I, for me, that's what makes me the most uh, frustrated and determined, you know, to push back against because I'm just tired of the the hypocrisy and, you know, the negativity and not really fighting for people, right? People aren't doing that when they call themselves leaders. And so the hate and bias prevention unit is meant to get some real coalition building going on the ground, be very intentional about it on the ground. So give me some examples of things that um, can be done, because I've been, you know, all the time, like I see different things happening. And I also saw our the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams. Yes. He was saying a lot of times um, the hate crime charge gets dropped, mm-hmm. right? When people are charged with things. We saw the whole situation with um, O'Shea Sibley. He mm-hmm. was stabbed. You know, he was voguing in the mm-hmm. uh, in the gas station. Mm-hmm. And that was clearly like, uh, but the fact that they even had to investigate it, we heard, you know, the slurs and the things that they were saying. And then recently I saw there were um, these teenagers, they attacked uh, an Asian family on the train, right? I'm sure you obviously mm-hmm. saw that video. But what was interesting to me was the family was like, look, you know, these young girls, there's something that must have happened in their lives for them to be like that. This is not a hate crime. Mm. You know, even though there were certain uh, things that were said, like go back to your country and things like that. Right. And, but it is true that these are young people and they're getting this from somewhere. So I think there's two pieces to what you you 
articulated there. And I think you can argue that they're, you know, competing. People, there are young people who are breathing in the air, mm -hmm. right, of this toxicity. And uh, Nelson Mandela said it, you know, no one's born to hate. Right. right. No one, you know, comes into the world hating somebody because of the color of their skin, their race, their gender, sexual orientation. That is learned behavior. Love is a natural emotion. You feel that naturally. But there's nothing natural about hate. It is it is cultivated. It is it is designed over the course of human actions, you know, rooted in a, a lust for power. And so ultimately, we have to be able to make sure our young children are being taught the power of love and engaging with them as early as possible and are being raised and reared in communities that are anchored in love. And we also have to hold bad actions to account, mm -hmm. right? It's a, Those two things are not mutually exclusive. Right. You have to, because otherwise, um, without the accountability piece, you, you ultimately undermine um, what you're trying to establish because yeah. you want young people to appreciate that there are going to be consequences for your actions. And this is not appropriate behavior. This is behavior that is terribly harmful to the mm -hmm. community and to yourself. Right. Right. And so we have to um, make sure that we uh, prosecute uh, and pursue justice in a way that is both um, that meets the the that apportions the punishment in a way that hopefully deters the action, but also creates a space where that young person in particular can learn and be rehabilitated. Right. That there's mm -hmm. a restorative aspect to yes. the process that that has to be more uh, um, included in how we think about punishment. Mm -hmm. Right. It's it's restored. It should be a restorative process as well. And especially for our young people, I've been traveling across the state and engaging in communities and with communities. And one of the things that I hear from the leaders in, in those communities is our young people don't have any spaces to go into to be themselves, to be free, you know, to 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 be silly, to be fun, to to just be normal kids, you know, and in the absence of those kinds of spaces, you know, it's it's a hard environment. You know, so what are some proactive things that you think uh, would be beneficial? I think being more focused on youth enrichment centers, mm -hmm. boys and girls clubs, after school and before school programming, summer enrichment programmings, making sure that we create physical spaces physical spaces that are welcoming uh, within our communities, uh, empowering in a very intentional way, the mentors, the educators, the coaches, the, the faith leaders in those communities, like real partnerships, not just throwing money at the area or the community and checking the box and saying, this organization got it, so we're good, but figuring out who's actually doing the work on the ground, who are the individuals that are trusted in those communities and making sure that they're properly supported and enhanced. A lot of times you hear folks say, well, you know, they're doing a lot of good work, but, you know, they don't really have the organizational capacity to really scale up. Mm -hmm. And that might be true. But then do we walk away from that problem or do we have a responsibility to some extent to figure out how to leverage what they have at the state level and grow it up right? and put the proper personnel in place? But that takes prioritization, right? You have to actually want to do that. And I think we're getting there and I think we're pushing in that direction. It's certainly something that I and the governor talk about is how do we get more direct and be more intentional? And when, when we think about equity and when we think about uh, inclusivity, what are we doing to really create that that environment in an intentional way? 
How did you and the governor actually end up, uh, you know, you ran on the ticket with her. So how did that come about? How did she and how did you guys connect? Well, that was, you know, um, it, it kind of came out of thin air. It wasn't, um, <laughs> it, it, you know, it wasn't it wasn't as if the governor and I had a, a longstanding, you mm-hmm. know, relationship. Um, we actually connected when I was in Congress. Um, I think a couple of times she came to D.C. to connect with the New York delegation. Uh, she came to my office. We had a good discussion. But this was a year at least before we had even had talks about me potentially becoming the lieutenant governor. Uh, When everything um, went down with the prior uh, lieutenant governor, there was a bit of a situation where I think she was trying to figure out with her team, you know, who could, who could potentially be in this position. I at the time was, um, was in Congress, you know, gearing up to run for a third term, potentially Mm -hmm. um, trying to figure out, you know, uh, what that was going to look like and, thinking about my family and thinking about my boys turning nine years old at the time, um, twins, and, you know, the challenges of that lifestyle. Um, and so at this, while I was thinking about all of that, this opportunity just kind of came to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I was approached to say, hey, you know, would you So the be team interested? basically vetted you out, like, let's see who there, would be good. And I then think there was yeah. obviously some work done, mm-hmm. you know, to figure out what I brought to the table. Um, and when the opportunity came, I could just tell you where my head was at. My head was at, well... I love being in Congress. I love serving my district. Um, and I, I'm, you know, we've done a lot of good things. 18 bills signed into law, 10 under Trump, eight under Biden, helping our farmers, our veterans, our small business owners, doing all that. Um, so I was in the work, uh, but I also really liked the idea of coming back home to mm-hmm. New York and trying to figure out how to do the work statewide and get into every community across the state. You know, um, and really engage with the diversity of the state. Right. That that was compelling, and to do it, and still be home. Right now, I have to leave the state so I can wake up in my own home. You know, with my go family. Go to work. Yeah. <laughs> go to work. Right. As opposed to being in D.C. for two, three weeks at a time, and then coming home, and then getting on the road again. So all those pieces for me, and and the opportunity, um, you know, was was uh, was something that, you know, we felt very good about, and, um, you know. Once I got to talk with the governor and we had a, some good conversations about, you know, what the future could look like, um, we went from there. What would you say have been some of the biggest challenges so in this first year for you? You know, I think everything comes with a learning curve, mm-hmm. you know. So, uh, you know, my old district was big. It had 11 counties. Right? So I thought that was big, yeah. bigger than Connecticut <laughs> and Rhode Island combined. But, you know, the state's a lot bigger yeah. than, uh, than that. And, you know, so just learning the state, getting around. Um, trying to figure out all the nooks and crannies and all the different communities and just figuring out how to re- how to relate to people and and in and, and a real and authentic way. Mm-hmm. Um, what matters when you talk to people because I've seen you all across uh, all across the state. So what are what are some of the things that people are bringing up the most? I think there's a lot of different elements, um, but if I had to sum it up, it, it, there's the the sense that people want to know where we're going. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't. And, and that can manifest in different ways. If you go to a community, for example, that doesn't have broadband. Right. Well, that, that in and of itself is a problem, but it also signals to them, well, what are we doing here? Mm-hmm. I mean, how do we not have broadband? <laughs> so, like, you know, if you go to a community that has main streets where they're, the small businesses are, you know, shuttering. Right? Yeah. What are we doing? We've been where, having a crazy issue with that. You mm-hmm. know, where are we going? Right. And I think people want to understand what the vision is and how. Um, what we're what we're doing economically and educationally to empower our young people. I think families want to know that their children can stay in New York and thrive. 
Um, and I think layered on top of that is this sense of affordability is a really huge issue. I feel like it's a massive when it comes issue. to housing congestion pricing. We're gearing up for that yes. potentially next year. I'm concerned about that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think the affordability piece is yeah. real. Um, and I think whether it's the housing, whether it's transportation, whether it's uh, health care, you, you name it, um, consumer goods. Because New York is such an expensive place for people to live. And so and then the other issue on top of that right now is with, you know, all the um, listen, I am all for like making sure that we provide uh, housing for migrants who are coming here, who are fleeing whatever situation they're fleeing and making sure that they get processed and go through the system in the proper way, but also be treated with dignity as human mm-hmm. beings. But how can we provide that? I think that's also a really huge issue because you can see certain people are trying to make an example yes. out of New York City. I feel like we're always the example. They want to show New York is known to be liberal, mm-hmm. you know, especially in New York City mm-hmm. in particular. And I feel like a lot of times they do things to try to make us have a more difficult time so they can be like, see, we told you these liberals are trying to make this happen and now it's a disaster. So I will tell you, I think the I really appreciate where you started in terms of, first of all, recognizing this is a humanitarian crisis, that there are people who are fleeing circumstances, families, um, and you, we can never lose sight of that aspect. And I think what makes New York special is that we do have um, that capacity to lead from the heart and to love and to care for people in a real and, and genuine way. Um, but we also need to have a plan, mm-hmm. right? And we need to make sure that we are dealing with the practical realities of a situation. It goes back to, in, a, in, a, in sort of in a smaller way, the, the hip-hop conversation, mm-hmm. right? I, I might have believed something. I might have thought I had a, a With all a great lane, intentions. Right? But ultimately, <laughs> I need to make sure that I, I understand the practical realities of a situation and I think when you have an environment, too, that is uh, filled with toxicity and you have demagogues and people who want to be divisive mm-hmm. and anxiety, what happens is it even makes trying to create those practical solutions even more challenging. Right. Because everything you put out becomes exploited or manipulated mm-hmm. or used for somebody else's advantage politically, as opposed to what is the problem we're solving for and how do we get it done and speak honestly and truthfully to the public about it. And I think... The, the there's going to need to be real coordination. The governor has been talking an awful lot with the White House. Keep in mind, this is a problem that fundamentally goes back to our borders, not yeah, New yeah. York borders, mm-hmm. right? Right. right? So, so ultimately, you know, when we when it gets to immigration law, comprehensive immigration reform is is imperative. We we have to have that, and we don't, right? Mm-hmm. And so because of that, you know, New York feels a lot of the fallout of, of those challenges, and it's incumbent upon us. Uh, to be thoughtful uh, around that dynamic, but then also to have proper coordination between the city and the state uh, mm-hmm. and making sure that we're all on the same page about how we want to manage the situation without being so quick to point fingers and blame anybody. Right. We end up gridlocked be... in a situation exactly. and stagnant. All right. Well, listen, I wish we could talk for like hours because I have so many other things <laughs> that I want to discuss, you know, for me being a lifelong <laughs> resident. And so I do care so much about everything that happens here. That's why I want to encourage people who are listening to make sure you read straight from the horse's mouth all the time, because there's a lot of misinformation Amen. that gets spread when you look at social media and when you look at other people's recounting of what someone else said. And so that's why it's important for me to have you come up here and just say things straight from your mouth. But also, I feel like uh, for people to see someone that they can relate to. As well. I appreciate that. And I appreciate you and the platform you have and the voice you have. And uh, I just, you know, really want to say thank you for having me and look forward to future conversations.
Yes, me too. Maybe you can do the theme song for the show or something. <laughs> we get you back. <laughs> Lieutenant Governor Antonio Delgado, how can people reach out to you if they want to uh, express themselves, if they want to get involved, if there's if you anything to, happening, if, they need if, to know if more? If you go to my website, um, you know, if you search me, Lieutenant Governor of New York, it'll pop up. Uh, you know, you can get to me on all my social handles, you know, Twitter and um, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, it's pretty easy to do. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's Way Up with Angela Yee. Way up. Hey, it's Angela Yee from Way Up with Angela Yee. Imagine swapping your car keys for a chance to move your body, better mental health, connecting with your community, and creating memories without spending money. Join me and embrace nature's pace by taking a walk, hike, or a bike ride with Rails to Trails Conservancy, because our time on the trail is so much more than a day outside. Get ideas for getting outside at reelstotrails.org slash iHeart and on social media at Rails to Trails. Hey, ladies, it's Angela Yee. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com slash RTP for official rules and a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com slash RTP. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.